Mountain Pass, a podcast about lifelong learning, curiosity, and our wonderful brain. Topics we love at Alp Audio. But this isn't a podcast about Alp the product. Rather, it's conversations driven by our curiosity. Today I'm talking to Martine Ellis, host of the Teaching Space podcast and a continuous professional development manager and scholarly lead and program lead for teacher and assessor education at the Guernsey College of Education. We connected over Twitter a while ago, and I've been super impressed with the thoughts and threads she publishes on productivity, well-being, and tools for thought. I wanted to discuss her learning and teaching journey, especially on social media, and how she thinks about these newer formats for courses in light of her formal teaching and training background. Enjoy. Martine, welcome to The Mountain Pass. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Joshua. And I just thought we could start with a little bit of your background, where you come from. For me, I feel like you're like a phoenix who's constantly rebirthing. I mean, we've known each other (laughs) for a little bit on Twitter and teacher, personal knowledge management, writer, newsletter, like there's so much going on. So I just wanted to, you know, take it away. What's your background? Where are you coming from? How did you get into teaching, education, personal knowledge, personal knowledge management (laughs) and everything? Yeah, I I do like to evolve. I think that's a really good observation on your part. I think it's something to do with being a lifelong learner. I'm constantly learning new things and right direction. So great question. Um, I think the the first thing to say is I'm based in Guernsey in the Channel Islands. Um, And for those listening who aren't familiar with Guernsey, because it's a very, very tiny island, we're kind of partway between the UK and France. And I like to think we're a bit more French than British in some respects. So that's where I'm based. And I had a senior leadership role in finance. I was a director of an international trust company uh, before the age of 30. You know, so I was doing very well in my career and I had lots of nice things like a, well, a massive mortgage and uh, a nice convertible and (laughs) disposable income. Gosh, I remember those days. Um, And I had all of that stuff and it was lovely, but I I didn't have, gosh, this is going to sound really cheesy, but I didn't have the satisfaction that I was looking for in a career. You know, I kept asking myself, who am I helping? I mean, ultimately, I was helping rich people get richer. And and that wasn't terribly fulfilling for me. Uh, So I did a scary thing. I made a massive career change. Um, I'd always loved teaching. Uh, You know, throughout my career, I've trained staff not because it was necessarily on my job description, but but because it was something I loved and something that I think I was quite good at. So it wasn't a complete sort of leap from one thing to another. I'd I'd had training in my blood. And uh, in our local newspaper, a maternity contract came up at our local further education college, teaching office administration. Now, I was a director of a trust company at this point, you know, but I knew that my admin staff, you know, made the business run perfectly. So I... And I'd always been all right at admin and I just took a gamble. It was an epic gamble. Uh, I knew the lady who was the contact on the newspaper article. I went for an interview. They offered me the job and I went, yeah, okay. Took a massive pay cut. It was a one year contract only. So it was a big gamble. And I haven't left. I've been there 13 years. Uh, I was an office administration lecturer and then I I went into sort of ed tech got very excited about that and now I am the professional development manager and scholarly activity lead and I also am head of teacher training so I help people who are in industry 
get into teaching and that is just the best thing. I know who I help now. So there's a bit of background on me. I hope that wasn't too long. <laughs> no, not at all. And really interesting. I think the, you know, there's the saying of those who who do do and those who can't do teach. So you're completely smashing through that nonsensical saying. Yes, I, I am. And actually, it's really funny you mentioned that because I was, while I was prepping for this interview, that saying came into my brain and do you know, it is nonsensical because if you try to teach something without the credibility of having the skill, you are not going to get anywhere. Uh, so, so yeah, I am smashing it, definitely. 100%. I also think, I mean, this is something that I've become more aware of since working on ALP is the, I'll call it the art and the science of teaching and teaching well and instructional design. Uh, you know, I think when, for, I'll speak for myself, growing up, you come into class and teachers are, they're on the spectrum between professional teachers and professional babysitters. And I think more and more <laughs> I've had this uh, appreciation for the professional teachers and the ones who give it thought and really take what they're teaching seriously and how they teach it. And it really is an art and a science and a profession. I totally agree with you. And I think that's really prominent in particular in further education. Um, so vocational based teaching and learning. So my colleagues where I work are teaching practical skills like plumbing and carpentry and hairdressing and things like that. And when you see the expertise the lecturer has combined with the expertise they're using in order to make learning happen in that way, it's, it's fascinating. It's an art and a science. So how did you go from teaching and I'll call it vocational training into the world of podcasting and Twitter? Because you're the host of the Teaching Space podcast, which is on a hiatus, but it does have a good back catalog. So when did that happen? Oh, that's such a good question. I think actually I was podcasting before I was teaching, but not in the format that you know of my podcast. So this might take you by surprise, but I started podcasting. I was a really early adopter of podcasting over 13 years ago off the top of my head. Um, and my first podcast was about knitting. Are you surprised? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, most people are. Um, so it sounds like a really strange thing to podcast about. But actually, when you think about it, people who are doing knitting and handmade crafts and things like that have their hands busy, but they like to listen to something while they make. So actually, there's actually 100%. a massive... Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a there's a crossover here with audio learning, isn't there? Um, but the, there's a massive knitting podcasting community. And I was one of the kind of early early kind of podcasters in that area. So I started podcasting, you know, well over 10 years ago um, about handmade crafts and knitting. And then I had a couple of other shows, uh, one focused on sort of small business activity and things like that. And then I ended up podcasting as the teaching space, which I've been doing for the past few years. Um, as you've mentioned, it's on hiatus, but that's because I am doing a master's in education and it is my my sort of dissertation year coming up. So I need all the time I can possibly find in order to do my dissertation because doing that part-time uh, with a full-time job is quite challenging. Um, so yeah, that, that's how I ended up podcasting. It was through knitting. And then that kind of all led me into the world of social media. And I would say of all the social media platforms, Twitter is now my happy place. I do like to share the odd sort of Instagram pic of my creative exploits, but mostly you'll find me on Twitter. 
And I will say on Twitter, you share a lot of great threads, mainly focused on productivity. I think it started in teaching kind of like the edu Twitter space, but more and more on personal knowledge management, on productivity, um, all kinds of hacks and different tricks, right? Yeah, and, and that really stemmed from going from a career in finance to a career in teaching where it was so entirely different and I had to learn to be productive in a very different way. But my my take on productivity is slightly different to many other people's take on productivity. And that's, I, I don't want to do more with less. I want to be productive in order to have time to focus well-being because I believe that you have to prioritize your well-being first and that enables you to be productive so it's a I call it well-being driven productivity it's a slightly different take uh, interesting because yeah definitely usually the standard approach is do more with less automate things um, you know manage to make the most of your time so how is well-being driven productivity that different because I think it's the, the reason behind being productive. I am not trying to be productive in order to fit all of the work things in. I'm trying to be productive so I've got time and space to look after myself and my needs and make sure that I'm healthy. And that all kind of goes in a, a nice positive circle. I'm not trying to burn out. I'm not trying to overwork myself. I'm trying to do a good job efficiently and have plenty of time to, to be well. Ah, uh, got it. I love that. I really love that. I think often in the productive circles, and I, I'm guilty of running in those circles, there is this constant run, constant rush for, I guess, just beating the system, being that much mm. better. Inbox zero, I'll get, you know, I'll get to inbox zero by 2 p.m. I'll wake up at five in the morning, I'll, you know, that kind of hamster wheel mentality. And the mentality that you were just talking about, which is really just, it just sounds much healthier to me where you're being productive to work right and not to work more. hundred mm, percent. And I think what you're describing is when productivity becomes quite toxic, uh, toxic productivity is not a good place to be. And a lot of people in the productivity sphere are pushing us towards that. It's almost like hustle culture, slightly polished into something else which is toxic productivity and neither of those things are good but I think well being driven productivity is is something else and ultimately it's about being the best you can be the healthiest the men you know we're talking about mental health primarily here but also physical health in order to be able to perform at your peak you know yeah for sure I mean I think we we have this discussion internally kind of around company culture which is you know, we're a startup so working fast, working efficient, working a lot, they all kind of come together. But one of the things that we've really focused on internally is really working smart and working smart, not so that we can work 18 hours a day, but really working mm. smart so that we can work better, faster, but not necessarily more. And I think one of mm. the, the huge benefits of work from home uh, over the past year and a half, and you know, Alp has really been we founded the company before, but we've really been a work from home company is that you can restructure your day around your highs and lows. So for example, I work really well in the early morning up until around 11. And then I hit this huge slump in the afternoon until yeah. three or four. And that's just part of my cycle. 
And yes, no matter how hard I push, it's just there. Um, so it's really a question about being smart and not necessarily forcing myself for those three hours to just churn more because that just exhausts me by the end of the day. And if you're exhausted, you're not going to churn out your best work, are you? So it, right. it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think when it comes to education or for us, it's content creation and education. You really have to be churning out top quality stuff. And that takes mental energy. It takes deep focus. It's not something you can just, uh, it's not hitting inbox zero. No, it's doing what's right for you. I, I mean, I think the role of the full-time teacher, educator, trainer, whatever, is a really challenging one because quite often you are sort of attached to a timetable where you have to work at certain times. And I think that's really super challenging. And, and what I try really hard to do is find approaches to productivity that take that into account and allow you to look after your own well-being. And it's really challenging. I can honestly say having come from a senior role in finance to a what was at the time a trainee lecturer role that teaching role is the hardest job I've ever ever done the busiest the most difficult you know it is so challenging um, you know I just think educators need support in this area they need support in pri prioritizing their own well-being to be the best they can be because we're a helping profession so we're always putting other people first right so I guess kind of going in on this topic more is you you recently did two cohorts of this online course called ship 30 for 30 which i'll let you tell us what it is but what i'm really interested in about is also it's a teaching and learning it's a learning experience um, and this is this is what you do and it's also on social mm. media like it's a very twitter driven course um, so how did those two mix also in terms of just productivity and well-being because the course is built around social media, but also just in general, what is the course? Um, what did you think about it? Take us through it. That's a, a great set of questions. Ship 30 is one of the best learning experiences I've had on online recently. Um, and, and just so you know, I'm really critical. <laughs> I think it's to do with being a teacher trainer. I'm not a really very easy student to teach. <laughs> um, I don't have any issue with investing money in online learning because I am a lifelong learner. I'm obsessed with the learning. Um, but I'm critical and I loved Ship 30. So fundamentally, it's a writing challenge, but it's a lot more than that. You join Ship 30 and you agree to write 30 pieces of content, one a day, and you write what they call an atomic essay. And I, I really like the idea of an atomic essay. It's 250 words maximum on one topic. So you're learning all sorts of things in this process. You're learning to be concise. You're learning how to structure things like a catchy headline and an introduction that's going to make people read a bit more. You're learning to ship something every single day, even if it's rubbish. Uh, you know, it, it's all of that process of producing something, shipping it, working with systems. That's I'm a systems person, so putting systems together to enable me to ship for 30 days uh, was was fun. I'm such a nerd. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's all it's all that good stuff. Um, and you publish primarily on on Twitter. That's where it kind of it all happens. But of course, at the end of 30 days, you've got 30 atomic essays, which you can then repurpose into something else, whether it's some audio content or a medium article or, you know, wherever you want to push things in, in a different direction. It might be a Quora response to a question or something like that. Um, 
So that's what it is. It's a challenge. But there's also, and this was unexpected, they also have like a Podia um, course set up where there's content for you to go through every single week to support you in developing your writing skills. And I didn't know that was going to be part of it. There's also a Slack community, which is really active. And I think the community, a lot of people say, you know, I signed up for the challenge and I stayed for the community. I can sort of see why they say that because the community are really awesome. And I think with many online cohort based courses to, to get things right, there's got to be community at the heart of it. Um, the other thing I would add is the credibility of the instructors. We touched on the idea of credibility just a bit earlier. I think those two things, the credibility and the community, that is what made it really, really successful. So I did one cohort and then I stayed for another one where I did something slightly different. And I'll do another one in the future without a doubt. Wow, amazing. What a, what a full-throated support, which is great to see for an online learning experience. Yeah, uh, they are really doing some exciting work. And the other thing I would, would add, actually, is that having been around now for three cohorts, so I, I did two and then I'm having a break this time around. So I've been around for three cohorts. In that time, the platform and the offer has been constantly developing and they're listening to feedback. They're asking for feedback, they're listening to feedback, and they are developing it into something quite special. And I think that's another thing, another tick in the box of, of the way um, Cole and Dickie, the people who run it, are are working to, to keep developing in that way is amazing. So what do you think we can learn from this kind of course? Um, especially, it's, it's a ship 30 is for lifelong learners, it's for people, working people, it's it kind of plugs into your daily schedule. It's not vocational training, but it's similar. So what do you think we mm. can apply from that to the way we think about our own courses? Mm, that's such a good question. And I think getting a community in place is key. Uh, I, can, I can give you another example of where for an online course community has worked really well. Um, I mentioned earlier on that I'm doing a master's in education in my spare time because as I said I'm obsessed with the learning um, and I'm doing that with the Open University so really completely different kettle of fish to Ship 30. Open University does degrees, master's degrees, bachelor's degrees, that sort of thing compared to Ship 30 which is a writing challenge. However what they have in common is community. For my my uh, masters this year, my tutor group, we have created a WhatsApp group. And I honestly don't think I would have got through this year of my masters without that WhatsApp group. <laughs> they have been absolutely fantastic. We have really helped and supported each other. And it's been an essential part of my experience. Now, arguably, the Open University didn't provide that community, but they did create an environment where it could be, you know, put together. So I think community is key and having strategically placed people within your community to it to develop it and to keep the conversation going and to ask key questions and to direct message people and check in and, and those sorts of things so if it's brand new you need to plant a couple of people to make that happen but it'll just develop and grow if you establish the right conditions so the point about community is something i'm really interested in because this is it's an area that we've never quite cracked at alp honestly mm. my background is um in jewish studies actually and in, mm -hmm. in the specific kind of jewish studies that i learned 
also in high school and then in yeshiva and then in university, what's very, very popular is a form of study called a chavruta, which is mm-hmm. uh, a buddy system. You learn with one mm. friend or three friends, it's usually two or four, and you study together. And that studying together not only adds to accountability, but it also adds to your support system because you're dealing with difficult texts. And it's also there for um, literal, literally the learning experience because one asks, the other answers, you discuss, you brainstorm, you, you try and solve the puzzle together as it is. And I've always felt that that's really missing in online learning. And these cohorts, they have the, the opportunity to fill that in, but I always wonder if the communities that are being built are very transactional, as in let's be together because you know we're going through this course together. And then at the end of that course, the community drifts apart or for Ship 30, where a lot of the communities around editing each other's works or liking each other's posts. And I just have this, I guess I wonder about is the fact that it's transactional good or bad, or maybe it's not transactional at all and just my assumption is wrong. I think the idea of an accountability buddy in an online learning situation is a brilliant one and it definitely works most of the time. Um, Ship 30 did a sort of, they paired you up if you could opt in to be paired up with somebody else. And as long as things like time zone and there's a, something else in common, I mean, I guess in this scenario, you're both wanting to learn to be better writers. As, as long as there's a few sort of commonalities, then it there is a really good chance it's going to work. I think it starts as a transaction but it can grow into something else if the environment is right. So while I didn't keep in contact with my accountability buddy for the Ship 30 first time round, I'm still very much part of the Slack community. Um, And although I'm not going in there every single day, I'm making sure at least a few times a week I'm checking in. So I think it's about the environment you create as the person leading the course and leading the community um, and having maybe sort of community managers to keep everything, everything running. You think? Sorry. Right. Okay. That's gone. No worries. I'm a busy girl. I must (laughs) Sorry. Next question. Do you think you'll be implementing, I guess, that element of a daily challenge and also the element of ship something, even if it's rubbish, like in your, in your next vocational training, do you think those two aspects will come into play? I think that's a really interesting question in the sort of teaching world, because I think one of the biggest issues trainee teachers have is they expect every lesson they deliver to be perfect. And it's never perfect. The minute you deliver the perfect lesson and you can't, <laughs> you can't learn something from your experience, then it's probably time to retire. So I think although maybe I won't do a kind of do something daily, even if it's rubbish. I think the perfectionism theme is quite an interesting one. I don't think perfectionism is very helpful in teaching 
at all because it can lead to burnout. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I'm in favour of sloppy teaching by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but I, I do I do have a bit of a mantra which I repeat to myself for the sake of my well-being, and that is sometimes B plus work is absolutely fine. You know, I think being a perfectionist can be very, very damaging. So it's sort of a half answer to your question, but I think that the essence of shipping something even when it's not perfect is 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 rooted in there somewhere. Yeah, it's interesting for us or one of one of the most formative experiences I think being a founder at a startup is that when I when I used to work and I wasn't founding my own startup, I used to do things A or A plus, or I'd like to think that I try to. Mm. And when you are founding a startup, you're constantly short on resources, whether it's time yes. or money or attention. And even though you have this intensely strong desire to do things as well as you can, in reality, even if you wanted to, you couldn't just because you don't have the resources. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to be said for shipping something that's B plus um, and getting it mm -hmm. out the door and getting feedback and recognizing that you don't know. I think that's one of one of the biggest learnings that I've had is I don't know. I don't know what users want. I don't always know how to explain things in the in the best way. And the only way to find out is to get something 80% done and ship it and hear feedback and listen to that feedback attentively and then iterate, right? And that constant iteration is something that I'm seeing more and more in the online teaching world where online courses specifically are becoming more like products. You mentioned that, um, ship 30 team Dickie and Cole are are really taking that approach and kind of doubling down each cohort they're iterating and they're improving it and they're also practicing what they preach because as well as them relying on a tight feedback loop from the people who are doing the course that's what they're encouraging people doing the course to do as well you know you're, you're having this tight feedback loop on your writing you're putting something out there every day you're looking at the data you're you're seeing what resonates with your audience and then you're writing more of that that's what they're doing with their course they're practicing what they preach and i just think that that's that's excellent teaching ultimately and it works and it works. Mm. So, so how did you combine productivity and well-being with social media? Because at least on my end, <laughs> I have to do social media and I have to be so careful with how I fit it into my day because those dopamine hits and that doom yes. scrolling can really <laughs> kill everything. So how did you, you know, lay down the wisdom? That's such a good question. And I'm not going to pretend that I am amazing at this, but I do have boundaries around how I use, for example, my mobile device. When I was doing Ship 30, I would write in the morning and try to do my my sort of networking with others on Twitter around their essays in the evening and then kind of be clear during the day. Um, so I think the key to all of this is having boundaries around when you do certain things. Another boundary that I have around social media is that I don't have any notifications on my mobile device. So I'm always using my mobile on my terms as opposed to when my mobile says to me, ping, you need to get a dopamine hit. Um, so boundaries around when and how I use my phone 
were key. Uh, that's about as much as I did when I was doing Ship 30. I would say my uh, social media use definitely went up over that period. <laughs> but then, you know, it, I, I had a really good excuse. I was doing a challenge. So, um, but, but it's all, it all comes down to boundaries. Anything around productivity and well-being, linking that to social media, it's all about having healthy boundaries. And the experience of putting out ideas, putting out those B plus ideas and dealing with the flip floppy feedback, right? So some ideas will get more positive feedback. Some ideas will get less feedback for me often on social media. It's like yelling into a forest when there's no one around, you know, if the tree falls and no one's there, did anyone really hear it? So what's, Mm. what's that experience like and how did that feel around things that you thought were valuable and all of a sudden some people thought were incredibly valuable or the opposite? That's a really good question. I I took into account the ship 30 effect when I started. And by that, I mean the fact that I was doing this challenge with a bunch of other people who I'd never followed before. They'd never commented on my work before. Um, I knew I'd have kind of a like a false uplift of feedback almost. So I I kept that in my mind when I reviewed all my data and stuff like that. So if I put something out and it flopped, I, I didn't assume that I could never write about that again. But what I did is I tweaked something for my next couple of essays and my next couple of essays and just, it was more... I wasn't obsessing on the data by any stretch of the imagination. It was more just a, a gentle dip your toe in the water and see how warm it is type thing. Um, so those those first 30 days were less about the data and more about the daily practice. The 30 days after that were more important for in terms of sort of testing the market and putting out minimum viable tweets, I would (laughs) refer to them. Because actually what I did for my second 30 days was I decided to write threads as opposed to images of an atomic essay. And the reason it gave me more information or more useful information is that the Ship 30 community were, when they're scrolling their Twitter feeds, they're on the lookout for those images of essays. They're not on the lookout for threads. So I think the thread experience was almost more useful in terms of me shaping what I was going to write about in the future and the data that it generated for me. Got it. So there's been this common thread, which has really been systems, right? Managing the social media uh, with boundaries. And this is definitely a system for content management, content repurposing, um, and also how to repurpose it for teaching later. And I mm. guess that connects to all of your your entire world of, of personal knowledge management. I'm wondering specifically around education and teaching and vocational training, what is it you think is so important about these skills for these worlds? Hmm. I'm a, I'm a systems nerd. You've, you've picked up on that very quickly. <laughs> I try to hide it when I first meet people about why I love systems so much. But I, I, systems are just so helpful in every single thing that we do. So you can work efficiently and replicate stuff that works. I, I can't imagine not being a systems person, to be honest, honest with you. I have a I have a flow chart for everything. And I think a lot of the trainee teachers that I work with, just they're very early on in their teaching career and they assume that 
teaching is this creative thing that's different every time and I'm not saying teaching isn't creative but it does rely on systems in order for it to work well um, and, I, and I enjoy helping people suss out the systems so they can work efficiently and they can replicate what works well because that almost gives space for the creative stuff to uh, uh, to happen. That's a really fluffy answer, but hopefully you can, <laughs> you can get something from that. No, not at all. I mean, it connects to a lot of discussions I've had with friends around writing or newsletters or content. Um, and also with, with how we think about Alp in the sense that there's a lot of things in our daily life that we could, I'll call it, not improve, even though that's the word I'm going to use, but make it more efficient to make room for that higher order thinking, mm. creative juices. And it's something that I really think a lot of people don't, uh, don't really understand, which is first you have to consume content, consume ideas, um, make, and then you have to make them your own. And only once yes. they're your own and they're kind of marinating in your head, can you do that deep work and get them out in whatever format. And that whole process of capturing, capturing content and information and making it your own, that can be systemized, systematized. Um, and it's, it's something we really think about at Alp in terms of, you know, when we consume our content on the go, right? I think a lot of the content that we consume is when we're driving, doing dishes, things like that. And, the way we capture that is really different than the way we capture information when we're reading or scrolling Twitter and we can bookmark things. I think if you don't systematize your content consumption, what you'll end up doing is just collecting a lot of information. And if the intention is you want to create something off the back of it, there needs to be a system that gets you there. Because otherwise, all you're going to have is a, is a humongous library of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's what your aim is. But if you want to produce content, if you want to produce new knowledge, you know, whether that's in an academic setting or not, you have to have a system otherwise it's just it, you can't do it that's just my opinion but it, it helps me enormously to have a system agreed agreed so where can people find you i mean this morning i saw a twitter thread that you wrote about um, mini hacks and i thought it was brilliant i thought it was brilliant just how you know Thank how can you. you save five ten seconds over and over you know your day um, and i really like the concept and I think you put out great Twitter threads and also greater longer form essays. So where can people find you, connect with you? Thank you. Uh, the best place to connect with me is probably Twitter, where you'll find me as Martine Guernsey. Uh, but I also have started a new personal website recently where I'm going to be sharing some of my content and it's got all of my social media links and things on there. So you can also find me at martineellis.com. And well-being driven productivity. That's where it'll be. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Martine, thank you so much for coming on the Mountain Pass. Oh, it's been lovely. Thank you very much for having me, Joshua.